Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you to the Athena Project. It's a new podcast that we're starting here. Just a, a group of friends that went to school together with each other um, that are now kind of blossoming off into our professional lives. Um, basically, the goal that we're trying to achieve with this um, is some education and enlightenment, uh, particularly among our generation and younger generations. Um, we feel strongly that political education is going to play a huge role in the future outcomes of our country um, on both a domestic and an international scale. Uh, so we kind of decided to put this together as a little side project um, to try to encourage uh, not only voter turnout, but also just kind of cognizant citizens, especially as our generation comes of age. Um, you may be wondering where the Athena project name comes from. Uh, that's a reference directly to Athena herself, the goddess of uh, knowledge um, and a little uh, woman power going on there as well. Um, just to give you a brief intro of, of who we got on the podcast with us, um, we've got Jordan Dickerson. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, like Garrison said, my name is Jordan Dickerson. Uh, we also went to school together. Uh, and then after I graduated from undergrad, I went on to law school um, at the University of Virginia. And I've finished my studies there. And I currently work as a legal aid attorney. And I'm also an adjunct professor at our undergrad as well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and where I teach uh, intro classes, so intro political science and American national government. Yeah, so Jordan's going to be providing a lot of the, uh, the legal background, obviously a huge part of uh, politics in this country, as every politician seems to be a lawyer nowadays. <laughs> um, so Jordan's going to be providing a lot of the uh, legal background, legal knowledge, um, a lot of judicial things such as that. Um, so she'll kind of be our expertise on that. We also have Logan on the other uh, more philosophical, deep thinking side. Logan, you want to say a quick hello? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Logan John. Uh, like Garrison said, my background is in philosophy. So if you want seedy conversations about Platonism, I'm your guy. Um, my, uh, I'm a master's student at Wake Forest University. Uh, my work aims to put critical concepts in communion with lived experience. Um, and uh, when I'm not behind on my paper, uh, you might find me behind a piano. Good deal. Okay. Uh, we do ask that you guys kind of stay uh, patient with us as we get this thing figured out uh, off the ground and rolling. Uh, maybe a couple of kinks that we have to go through. Uh, it's just uh, season one, episode one here. But overall, uh, appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, any support that you may give is, is always welcome. Uh, we're going to kind of play this out over time and then really try to expand our vision and see what we want to make with this thing. Uh, we do look forward to eventually hoping having guests on and, and things like that. But Overall, we're looking to uh, roll about once a week um, to roll out kind of what's going on that week uh, as far as political affairs go, um, both domestic and internationally, uh, particularly as uh, the presidential race starts to heat up kind of coming into November. Um, so I encourage you to, to stick around and, and keep giving us a listen every week. And again, thank you for all your support. everybody so the first topic we're going to talk about fairly new uh, probably two weeks old now but we're a little bit behind we just wanted to address this before we kind of got to the biggest news of the past week and probably the next month uh, with Biden's announcing uh, Kamala Harris as the as his vice president um, but we just want to talk about Trump's executive orders first as you know, coronavirus pandemic raises on and our Congress seems to not be able to do anything to help the American people um, and they kind of go back and forth with the White House. So we wanted to hit on 
executive orders first that Trump has come out with last week, kind of what they are, what their purpose is, um, and the specific ones that Trump has passed, what they do, if anything, to actually help anybody. Um, so we're going to let the legal expert of the cast handle most of this. Um, so, Jordan, if you could just tell, first off, anybody who may not know, um, what exactly is a presidential executive order and what does it aim to do? Yeah, so um, executive orders are essentially, essentially federal directives that the president issues um, that cover some kind of power that he has within his executive authority. Um, so all executive orders have to be based in some kind of constitutional power uh, given to the president. And, you know, a lot of these, I think a misconception nowadays is that executive orders have become are a relatively new phenomenon. But mm. in actuality, you know, George Washington issued executive orders. So did, you know, President Adams, uh, you know, so if they're, they've been a thing since, you know, the beginning of the country. Um, they've just, I would probably say, become a, the executive orders have become a, a lot more impactful uh, politicized even to an extent yeah um so some we get some you know pretty important historical events from executive orders so like the emancipation proclamation issued by president lincoln was an executive order um we, we also get some not so great executive orders like uh, fdr's japanese internment camps those were also issued by executive order mm-hmm. um gerald ford pardoning um, President Nixon was an executive order. And a lot of times the executive orders, you know, they'll just announce the appointment of someone into some kind of position or, you know, the nomination of someone for a judicial seat. So sometimes they're, you know, pretty routine. And then other times they're, you know, way more consequential, like uh, Trump's travel ban, uh, Muslim ban. Um, and uh, for anybody who's, you know, illegal. Uh, anyone really interested in legal cases, you know, the steel seizure cases under President Truman, um, which really, which is a Supreme Court case that essentially kind of defines the powers of what an executive order can do. Um, that also came from a Truman's executive order when he tried to uh, nationalize the steel production in the United States. Right. Right. So just to be clear, the, it's a constitutional right that is provided uh, to the president. Um, in a more realistic kind of modern day approach, the president has an entire, particularly with this president, has an entire legal team um, that essentially that are constitutional lawyers um, that sit here and, and ponder ways and kind of move the chess pieces across the board um, to be able to see what they're allowed to get away with under that constitutional right. Um, and I kind of feel like that's maybe why you see, I mean, I, we kind of came of age in the Obama administration. I'm, I'm not, I'm Go ahead and admit I'm not too quite familiar with what George Bush may have done during his presidency with executive orders. Um, But it did start to seem that during the Obama administration is when you kind of just start to see them be used or at least the media start to pay attention to them more as as a political weapon almost, even if it is so much a formality or ceremonial. Um, They can be helpful in in some ways, but um, Jordy may be a, a better judge of this. I mean, it may pertain to what exactly the executive order is trying to do will actually control how effective it is. So in the, in the example of Trump's travel ban, the president does have the ability to essentially block travel from those countries. Um, but as an example of one of the most recent ones he passed uh, where he was going to uh, keep the unemployment benefits at $400 a month. Um, there is a state fund component of that a certain percentage, um, but he has no real ability to be able to fund that, type of initiative 
um, because that constitutional power relies within the house with the power of the purse. So try to break that down as much as we can for you to kind of show you that it's really this broad kind of spectrum, um, I don't, political weapon. I would hate to use weapon for a lack of a better term um, that can sometimes be powerful. And, and sometimes it's really ceremonial and, and meant to kind of attract attention. Um, that that sound pretty accurate for the most part, Jordan? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I would say, so just for instance, to, for something you said about, you know, President Obama, um, being criticized for his use of executive orders. In fact, uh, President Bush issued more executive orders than President Obama. So I think it really okay. does come down to maybe the popularity of the president or, you know, kind of how divisive politics are at the time. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, during the Great Depression, FDR, almost every policy FDR we got out of the New Deal was via an executive order. All of those programs and agencies were created um, by FDR via an executive order. So I think it and, and those were largely unpopular at the time. Many of them were struck down by the Supreme Court um, for being unconstitutional. So I kind of I kind of think it does depend on the personality of the president, because I, I, I do think that, you know, people we have this misconception that, you know, Obama, you know, just essentially uh, exploited the use of the executive order right. when that's not that's not true. I mean, like Bush used more. Trump has already used um He's only, I think, a less than 100 behind Obama in just his first term. Right. So, you know, it, it's, they are very politicized. I think it does matter what they're doing. But I also think it kind of matters what, who's, who's in office and how they're perceived by right, the public. Right. Uh, Logan, just to get kind of a little bit of your input on this, I'd be interested to hear kind of a, um, maybe a long-term political, political repercussions of this or maybe strategic repercussions of this as... I think now we're kind of getting into a presidential, uh, maybe an area where we're consistently more than maybe before comparing previous administrations to the current administration. And, and so it's almost like as we kind of go through these terms and the House flips or the Senate flips or the White House flips and we go through these these terms and we say, OK, well, now that Republicans did this in 2016 to 2020, when the Dems get in there, they're going to abuse it. Um, and, and, you know, it's going to set a new precedent and, and things like that. Um, what's kind of your opinion on a more kind of long-term scale about could this uh, potentially be damaging as we kind of, um, I guess, essentially be abused in, in Trump's case, um, potentially set a precedent for a more type of controlling president? Um, I don't want to use the word dictator, but one that may be more controlling and, and you know, try to take a more monarchical approach to things. Well, yeah, I think if I'm a future president and I'm looking at what Trump's done and I'm saying, all right, he took this approach, uh, the reality TV uh, executive order episode of the Trump television show. Uh, was this an effective means of implementing power or even, you know, from a less cynical perspective, did this effectively help people? Um, and, and I think I have to say no, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you mentioned the executive order um, that sought to use the Stafford Act to fund additional $400 towards unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. Well, that received pushback from multiple governors and not just Democrats, but Republican governors. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when you're looking at Trump, you know, in, in this era of polarization for people from both parties to simply be saying, no, you can't do that. Uh, in addition to that, you know, the New York Times reported today that it could take weeks or months before any of that money arrives. Um, and so whether you're a president looking to, you know, effectively make change or a president who's just trying to 
make a splash like Trump always seems to be doing. Um, you're not particularly looking at this type of executive order as an effective right. means. I, I think Trump is the outlier, not the model to follow. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and so we'll kind of use this to transition into the, uh, the ones that, uh, Trump has passed it the last week and mainly like you, you hit on there, he, he passed one that said he would give an additional 400 in weekly unemployment benefits. Um, that's going to replace the $600 a week Congress one that they had approved in the CARES Act earlier in the year. Um, the one where he's he's got one in here where he's protecting some renters from eviction, but there's a lot of conversation about the language in that one, whether it actually it, it almost in an essence kind of suggests that we not evict people and and kick them out of their homes uh, with foreclosures um his his next one is deferring payroll taxes which again we can kind of debate on this a lot there's a lot of um kind of cross debate from across the aisle about how effective that is and, and who that really helps in the long run and then his last one here which is the one that i really think he may actually the only one he may actually have any control over is the student loan payments and the suspension of you know requiring those to be paid and, and interest building on those um, but, you know, we kind of dig into how effective these are. And, you know, I think we slightly hit on uh, the $400 a week unemployment benefits. I mean, uh, Jordan, you can kind of help me on this one. Does it does he even have the ability to pull? I mean, I know they were talking about, again, messing with disaster aid. That's the first thing he goes after when he's trying to find extra money is either DOD or disaster aid. Does he even have the the authority to be able to shift that budget to be able to fund something like this, or would it have to originate in the house? So, um, so any initial budgeting that, um, an agency is given is given by the house when the house passes a budget. Um, but once that money is already given to an agency, uh, because those agencies fall under the executive branch, uh, and they all, well, not all of them, most of them do fall under the executive branch So Trump has, or whoever's in office, kind of has the ability to uh, give suggestions and directives on how that agency agencies should spend that money. So, for instance, when Trump was trying to build the border wall, um, he did uh, direct some FEMA money um, towards the wall. And, you know, subsequently we had, you know, Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Florence right after that. So we can obviously that was not a great policy decision. So. Short answer, yes, depending on he can direct it, direct money, depending on where it's going and where it's coming from. Um, but I would say with this, it doesn't really look like this is going to be an effective way to give out unemployment. Um, I would argue that this executive uh, order was really passed to kind of allow the Senate to go home, allow Mitch McConnell to release the Senate so that they didn't have to deal with it. Right. Um, because that was really the one of the big holdups of the, the new stimulus bill that uh, was being debated in Congress was, you know, how, what are we going to do about unemployment? And, you know, obviously I think the Democrats were all pretty on, on board and there was some division um, with the Republicans about, you know, it really it just came down to those that are up for election this year and those that are not. Um, and they just really couldn't come to an answer. So I think this was a way for like Trump to kind of say he did something without actually doing anything. I, I, again, even if this was able to happen, it's going to take months before this money gets out. And I would say, I would argue that this is not going to be, I don't think this is a way to give out unemployment. So honestly, I think it's just a way to deflect um, the Senate's inability to reach 
uh, any sort of compromise with the Democrats. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would be completely surprised if at any point in my lifetime there is ever unemployment payments that are given out by this executive order. I still do not believe that in any way this will result in unemployment benefits going out. I still think that's going to have to be something that just both sides come to an agreement on that's going to have to be in order to fund that, um, you know, the, the rate at which you'd have to borrow um, is not going to be something that he's just going to be able to shift around in a budget, um, yet alone we shouldn't even be shifting things around in a budget, um, you know, like I previously said, because particularly with a Republican in office, it's probably coming out of education or, like you said, disaster relief. Uh, we're coming into uh, the worst part of hurricane season. Um, so I'd be very surprised to, you know, even months down the road, um, I would expect to see an additional stimulus check. Um, you know, maybe some type of act passed that includes that, which would then address unemployment in there as well. Um, I was going to hit on the payroll taxes a lot because I don't think a lot of people understand what exactly this is um, and what it benefits or who it may potentially benefit. Um, so essentially a payroll tax, um, it's exactly what it sounds like it is. It's, you know, you're a normal worker, you're working a part-time job, full-time job. It's the federal tax that comes out of your paycheck um, that you pay in. And then when you file your taxes at the end of the year, you see if you paid enough in and so on and so on. Um, for some reason, over the last few months here, Trump has appeared to fall in love with this notion. Um, there's a couple of different you know, ideas about why. Um, a lot of people say when you kind of put the numbers to it, it really only helps um, those in, in higher incomes. Those, that's who's going to see the most biggest break from it is those with higher incomes. Um, the also the the two phase side of this is that, I mean, you, so he suspends it, but essentially what he's doing is suspending it. So all he's saying is that you're not going to owe payroll tax through the end of the year. He's just going to shift that to a later part of the year. So he does have the ability to come back in with a second wave and say that we're just going to erase your the legal requirement for you to owe these taxes. Um, but at this point, all he's done is say that we're just not going to require it for these last few months of the year, um, but they are still going to be due. So essentially that would mean that he wouldn't do anything by February or by January when people start filing taxes, um, that you're probably going to be reamed then or reamed the year afterwards because you're going to have this big deficiency in federal tax that you have not paid. Um, again, this is kind of, and you guys feel free to put any input in on this. This just kind of seems, and I'm not quite sure if this is, this is probably part Trump theme and part, um, for some reason, the, the lack of lack of education over the last couple of years of the Republican Party to really, they kind of just put this flashy terminology up on the board and, and really there's no serious or effective outcome that comes out of that. Um, you know, do you guys have any input on that, whether you actually think this would be any type of benefit, there would be any type of benefit to the average low income or middle class American off of something like that? Well, I, I, I think it's important to name what the payroll tax funds. The payroll tax is the funding stream for Social Security. Right. Um, and suspending the main program that funds Social Security, while at the same time making an election pl pledge to protect entitlement programs, uh, while and providing no benefit to the American people while doing it, uh, it's just kind of the greatest Trumpian showmanship, right? Yeah. He gets to come out and say, I've done a tax cut. and Maybe more money will end up in some people's pockets now, but it doesn't help unemployed people. Uh, mm -hmm. You can look at the unemployment numbers and determine whether we should be assisting those people. And it only hurts people in the long term and hurts the nation by taking away from one of our most like, popular and 
needed programs. Right. Uh, yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me beyond a political opportunity to say you're cutting taxes. Is and it still just baffles me the way that we are just we. I mean, again, I'm asking too much of the American public to really be attentive of this, but the the rate at which we just sit by and allow Social Security to be borrowed out of or to be defunded, um, it really just baffles me. And, and, you know, we kind of walk around and a lot of people, baby boomers, will try to say this is a running joke that they've been saying since they were our age that, you know, well, there's not going to be any Social Security, you know, by the time I get to that age. Um, You know, I've always heard that throughout my entire life, but to a certain extent, I, I mean, I also kind of chuckle at that because, I mean, you can keep saying that, but all good things come to an end eventually. And if you keep doing the shorthandedness, such as funding a war in the early 2000s, or um, such as now cutting the revenue stream for that, I mean, I just, in, and in a nightmare scenario, I absolutely see it here now where Republicans are saying Social Security is imploding, Social Security is going bankrupt. We now need to privatize Social Security or find a way to privatize national federal retirement. Um, and, you know, that's I mean, they're itching to do that with Veterans Affairs. I'm sure they're itching to do that with, um, you know, Social Security. They would love to get a hold of that. Um, so, I mean, I, I, again, I would I would absolutely agree with you that this just seems like more showmanship. Um, and, and I really hope people kind of would do the research on this um, and understand that there's really not much benefit. I, I mean, I honestly heard a few days ago that a lot of your major companies wouldn't even wouldn't even really touch this. They would probably still tax at the same rate because they wouldn't even know how that percentage would, would change come tax time when they're filing at the company level. Uh, so they probably wouldn't even adjust your pay, your pay income at all, your pay tax at all, um, because they're not going to know what this is going to look like six months down the road when they're now due for their tax bill. Um, so again, I just don't think there's any, any type of real type of productivity that comes out of this. Like you said, it does nothing for unemployment people. Um, we already hit on the, on the renters, the evictions and the foreclosures. Again, there's, there's no real serious language in there. Most of that is just suggestions. Um, and, and, you know, at least he did kind of throw somewhat of a, uh, you know, some bait to millennials on there with, with keeping the student loan payments. You know, that pushed through the end of the year. I'm, I'm very grateful on that. It's beautiful to see a student loan uh, balance go down without interest being applied to it. It's unbelievable. It kind of makes me feel like the Department of Education shouldn't be charging interest on those as is, um, mm. which, you know, we're taking baby steps. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that kind of wraps up, you know, where we're at on that. It's kind of full circle here. It's showing kind of what an executive order is. And this, these may be examples of really overall showmanship and, and kind of him trying to set the stage, the, you know, the chessboard for, you know, when October, November rolls around and, and you know, God forbid, we still don't have a deal on the table that he says, well, you know, look at me. I tried to be the man of the people. I tried to get, you know, I tried to help people try to get this through. Um, and still, even then, they weren't willing to work with me. Um, so, yeah. Any any final any final thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I think I would just say that you know, so you know, the House, the Congress is going to reconvene in September, and I would be interested to see how. I mean, obviously, coronavirus relief bill is going to be the first thing on the table, and I think we're going to see a really interesting dichotomy, particularly within the Republican Party of the people that are up for election and the people that are not. Um, I, I don't know what things will look like a year or a month from now, but I can, I can assume that, you know, unemployment um, is still going to be an issue. People are still going to be struggling financially and they're going to want some kind of relief from Congress, whether it be another stimulus or some, you know, reinstating the unemployment benefits. Right. And I think you're going to see, you know, Republicans that are up like a, 
Martha McSally in Arizona, I mean, she was already kind of for redo, renewing the uh, unemployment benefits because they're going to feel a lot of pressure from their constituents. So mm-hmm. I, I would, I would predict we'll probably get another relief bill come, you know, end of September, October, just because, you know, the Democrats obviously want that. And there are going to be Republican senators that are going to want that. Um, and then we'll just have to see, you know, where that leads with President Trump and if he would sign it. I don't think there would be, I don't think there would be like a veto-proof majority in that in Congress. So it would really right. come down to President Trump. And you know, with it being, you know, it's an election year. You'd think he would sign it, but you know, we also have come to learn that Trump is an enigma. So. Right, right. And and I think from what I've learned about this, the just as one final note here, I think the biggest breakdown in negotiations on the on the two side of this was that the Republicans were trying to get them i guess agreed to go up from one trillion to two trillion and the democrats were still at three trillion and from the best that i know that the democrats were not willing to come off of that three trillion figure at all um to to you know fully fund those unemployment benefits through i believe the end of the year um essentially extend everything that the cares act originally approved essentially extend that to the end of the year um you know provide additional funding for schools at the state level um state level health programs and, and things like that um, I mean, just to make sure that's that's from what I understand, that was the biggest breakdown. Am I right on that? Yeah, it, it definitely was that because um, Republicans did want to cut unemployment benefits um, right. from the 600. So I, I don't know. I, I do think we'll get another relief bill come fall time. And I think the real interesting uh, coverage will be, you know, that bill passing Congress and, you know, landing on Trump's desk and what he chooses to do with it. Right. And then the timing of the election and that as well. And it'll be interesting to take a look at, you know, the economy numbers at that time as well to kind of see how all that um, plays in with each other. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And I guess we'll, uh, we'll cross that bridge and then talk about that one and hopefully gets here for the American people. Yeah. <laughs> Are you tired of cooking at home? <laughs> what is it? Uh, Try home chef. Yeah, there you go. Hello, Hello Fresh. Hello Fresh <laughs> is what it is. Just a quick message from our sponsors and we'll be right back. I uh I like to travel on the road from time to time. <laughs> when I go out, I always you know, I, I just forget to book a hotel. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot. The hotel tonight, that's the app. Captain Obvious. Jesus Christ! There is a uh, they actually have monetization built into the app. So no, oh yeah, we, they do. We get when we get big enough, we can start putting. Uh, maybe we can start doing like Cal Cunningham negative ads. <laughs> you know, and just like be like, like I thought this is like the whole discussion is like clearly like left leaning, and but we just run Republican political ads. <laughs> <laughs> and people are like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> God bless, bro. It is you know what's so bad about this shit is like they're literally they'll play them back to back to back. So I have to watch a Cal Cunningham pro one. Then I have to watch a not pro Cal Cunningham one. <laughs> then I have to watch Tom Tillis. How Tom Tillis oh, doesn't God. care about people washing their hands. <laughs> And then Tom Phillips loves our military. So I'm like, bro, this like is this is getting to a level now where it's like you're gonna give somebody personality disorder just by watching <laughs> like watching fucking political ads, dude. Like, oh my God. This I mean, I mean again, they're getting to the point now where I feel like the two things that need to be made illegal 
is fucking pharmaceutical commercials and campaign TV ads. Illegal. Get rid of them. Gone. I mean, those are things that are uniquely American. American, yes. Yeah, like if you go, to, you go to Europe, you're not, you will never see a pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical no. Ad. No, it's like us in one other country where they're legal. Right. Yeah, and you know what's like also in Europe, they're not allowed, you're not allowed to be like, our product is rated number one by four out of five dentists. Like, you're not allowed to advertise like that because it's fucking misleading. I think as we're all aware, most of the nation, uh, Kamala Harris has been chosen as Joseph Biden's running mate uh, for the 2020 Democratic race. Um, We're going to kind of delve into this a little bit, um, what it may potentially mean, um, some of the pros and cons here. Um, I'm a little 50-50 on the pick. Um, Obviously, definitely want to acknowledge some of the significance of this, of her being chosen, um, you know, some of the progress that's being made in American history right now. Um, but also as well, let's, you know, let's kind of weigh out uh, the flaws that are really starting to rear their head in a two party system, um, as well as the fracturing um, or maybe even potentially the, the revolution of uh, the political parties as we know it. Um, so just from some short background here, um, in case anybody may not be too familiar with Kamala, um, a lot of people kind of got a, a, a brief background on her as she was running her presidential campaign. Um, she's a very well-educated woman, um, Howard in, in uh, Washington, D.C., um, HBCU. So uh, she's definitely uh, loyal to her roots. She has done a lot um, for a little bit from minor- minority communities, um, being from the Oakland area. So leading up to kind of, I think the biggest, at least one of the biggest uh, cons that I've heard from the Republican side is, is trying to delegitimize her political career, I guess, or at least the, the starting of it. Um, by her dating uh, at the time in in the early 90s. um, She ended up dating Willie Brown, um, who was the Speaker of the State Assembly. Um, It was kind of an awkward situation when it it happened. Um, He was 30 years older than her. Um, And a lot of people think this is in 1994. A lot of people think that because they were dating at the time um, that he was able to appoint her um, to different political offices that started essentially that were allowed her to build a foundation to start her political career. Um, this was things like the California Unemployment Insurance Appeals Board and the Medical Assistance Commission. Um, you know, and she was also a prosecutor on top of this. Um, in 1995, Willie Brown is elected mayor of San Francisco. Um, they end up breaking the relationship off, um, but at this point, he's still in a very powerful position. Um, you know, to be able to pull some strings for her. So not at all, at least from my standpoint, not at all discrediting, um, you know, any of the the resume that she would have brought to the table to definitely be able to work in these positions. But from what I can understand is as far as attacking the main points of her early career, uh, this is the main argument that I hear um, is that she really didn't work for what she had. And again, from our very, uh, well, I guess not very far right, it's probably traditional right. Um, they're going to try to bring up that essential uh, that a woman basically slept her way to the top of the ladder. I could definitely see this argument being made um, when it comes down to it again, to try to delegitimize um, anything she made, you know, that have shown that she's worked for Um, Jordan, you have anything to kind of put her on that, her background or, you know, what she did in her early career. You know, the people uh, on the Democrat side are excited to see her prosecute Trump. Um, And that was something that she kind of ran on when she initially ran for democratic uh, nomination. 
I mean, she does. I think she has a, a complicated uh, background as a prosecutor, um, and with some, she did well on some issues and not so great on others. Um, essentially, working in the DA's office to district attorney to attorney general. I mean, she's had every absent working in like the Department of Justice. Um, she's had every you know, at least on the prosecutorial side, positions that she could. Um, and she always boasts about this, but uh, California has the, the largest uh, justice system after the DOJ. Um, right. So, and she was in charge of that. And, you know, for better or for worse, that kind of does say something about her management style. Right, right. Yeah, and I, don't, and I don't think anybody's expecting her to have this flawless background. Obviously, that's not, um, you know, particularly nowadays, uh, that's not something that I think we should be expecting. Uh, I mm-hmm. think that'd be pretty common for anybody that we would pull up. You would say, you know, they did good on these things. They did, they did bad on these things. But I think where she's kind of catching a lot of her flack is what we're dealing with in the nation right now, as far as, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, um, the criminal industrial complex, things such as that. She necessarily doesn't have the best record on hot topics such as that. That's why I think this is such a controversial pick. Um, but definitely give her credit where it's due. She has had, you know, decades long at this point, a successful political career. Um, she's had a couple of things that plagued her along the way. Some decisions she made as, um, as the AG, I think in uh, 2004, I think was a big one where she decided not to prosecute a death penalty. Um, you know, when someone that uh, murdered a cop, essentially she caught a lot of flack over, uh, I think Diane Feinstein at the time, um, you know, give her own flack over that. Um, but she still has had a, a successful um, you know, career even now at, at the Senate level and, and Logan, you can probably talk to more on this. She does sit on some pretty powerful um, Senate committees that are, are pretty well in the loop um, and are, you know, are pretty or are, are sat on by, you know, well, well-versed individuals that have, that is in the rookie term. Um, if you want to kind of go into more detail on, on what she has kind of done in her um, political career. Yeah, sure. Um, so she, she hasn't been in the Senate, you know, long. She was one of the 2016 uh, electees. Um, but, you know, in that time, despite having a Republican Senate, um, she has um, passed five pieces of legislation, which may not sound like a lot to people who aren't familiar with the way the Senate functions. But um, that is, you know, for a, for a freshman term um, senator, that's, that's, you know, if not impressive, it's, it's really consistent. Um, most of the legislation she sponsored or co-sponsored, this is stuff she sponsored, but obviously hasn't been passed um, given the Senate's composition. Um, most of the legislation she sponsored has been um, very progressive or um, might be considered uh, very far to the left. Um, in ratings by GovTrack, she is either the third or the fourth most liberal senator. Wow. Um, and... Um, and that was something, you know, just doing research for this podcast that I that I realized she's she's co-sponsored uh, during her time more bills with Bernie Sanders than anyone else. Um, okay. uh, and kind of her two most famous, I guess, pieces of legislation that she's co-sponsored uh, was the Medicare for All bill that was written with Bernie Sanders. Um, that one had some uh, primary election implications. And um, a lot of people probably saw the viral video of her and Cory Booker defending the anti-lynching bill. Right. Um, so um, overall, you know, pretty far to the left um, in, in her Senate career, um, working with people like Bernie. Um, I think she has like a zero rating on working with Republicans, <laughs> which isn't right. um, 
which isn't good or bad. You know, it has there's pros and cons to to depending on what you want out of her leadership position. But um, yeah, I'd say a pretty pretty active Senate career for a for first term senator. Yeah. So I, and I and I think that's going to play. You know, we just let's just spitball here and say you know they win in November. Um, you know, for those that may not know, the vice president serves as essentially the president of the Senate. Um, so I feel like that would create a, a very interesting dynamic, um, you know, whether she can even form a working relationship with the other side of the aisle. Um, I can only imagine how many old Republican white men um, would essentially be shitting their pants in, on the Senate floor because there's a black woman that's now over the Senate, um, you know, and to kind of see how that would play into what gets done. And again, if Mitch McConnell's there, I can promise you this just gets going to be an Obama all over again. You know, nothing's going to come through this floor, yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, God forbid that Democrats wouldn't win the Senate, um, which, you know, essentially this time is a, is a toss up, but I definitely think um, that's going to play a, a very interesting card um, to see what she's able to do. Um, you know, when Biden came in there under Obama, you know, his longtime lifetime politician, had previous relationships, you know, previous favors to call in, you know, new individuals from from different backgrounds and things like that. Um, so that's probably one of the most interesting dynamics I would be interested to see if they do end up winning in November um, is how that dynamic in the Senate or how those enter probably, you know, even within the party towards that traditional, more left leaning dynamic. Um you know, what she's able to really get accomplished. Uh, you know, we think four years is a long time, but really it's not. Um, and, you know, in, in this the last probably 10 years now, we, we have a do-nothing Senate. Um, so to to be able to kick that into gear and actually get something passed, that, that would be very impressed with that. Um, not even including, you know, any type of complications that may come in by her being a woman, yet alone a black woman. I think, Jordan, we'll just probably let you go first on this. Um, kind of what the implications are of her being chosen, obviously the significance of that, um, you know, you can kind of talk about that a little bit and then overall kind of just on a basic, um, you know, political standpoint, purely, purely political and strategic, um, why you like it and why you don't like it, you know, kind of how that plays into the, uh, the strategy of the DNC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why I like it. Um, obviously it's a historical pick. Um, not only would she be, is she the first, um, you know, black woman on, a, the Democratic or e- either party's uh, presidential ticket. She's also the first Asian American woman. She's uh, biracial. She's black and Indian. Um, and I think that that's really significant, um, especially with this with the backlash we saw from Obama and we got Trump. Um, I think the 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 responsiveness of the Democratic Party to kind of flip um, and still put up a progress or put up a uh, a diverse. VP candidate. Um, I think that's that's a good thing. Um, so I think that's the the most obvious like pro why I'm I'm happy with the choice or w- one reason I would be happy with the choice. Um, mm-hmm. A strategic pro um, for her this choice is I mean earlier um, I think you both said that she is a progressive um, senator or was a pro- had a progressive senate career, um, but I I I don't think she kind of had that um, on display when she ran for the Democratic nomination. Like she she definitely kind of like floundered between this, I'm a progressive, but yet I'm not Bernie Sanders and I'm not Elizabeth Warren. Um, I mean, one thing that really sticks out to me is was her uh, plan for the Pell Grant, Pell Grant recipients getting business loans. 
Um, that plan was just completely tone deaf to the realities of being a college, you know, a college graduate. Um, and if you're on a Pell Grant, you probably also have student loans. And I received a Pell Grant in college, and there was no way that I would have been able to start a business upon graduating college. Um, and in that plan, she was going to have, you know, if you started a business and it was able to stay afloat, I think, I think it was three years that they would, uh, there would be some uh, federal benefits and, you know, helping you with your getting that loan and also helping you um, with your student loans. And that was just a really tone deaf program. People right. that get, people that get Pell Grants are, you know, not in positions to be starting businesses. And I think so I, I have, I mean, as a progressive, I, I was very disappointed with her campaign and I kind of referred to her as a fake progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a strategic point for the Democratic Party, I mean, it was probably her not being a progressive is probably a good thing. Um, I think they're, they're safely betting on everyone who's, you know, people that were Bernie sp- supporters and Warren supporters are going to not vote for Trump anyway. Um, and they're hope they're banking on trying to get people in the middle. They're trying to get those moderates. And unfortunately, someone like maybe Elizabeth Her- uh, Elizabeth Warren as a VP might not be the, you know, might not be enough to get those moderates because I think there's a realization that you know Biden is not going to be maybe as gung ho a president as Trump or Obama, and that a lot of the weight is going to shift to the VP. Right. So I don't know. I push back on the fact that she's a very progressive. Uh, politician. I mean, she sponsored some great bills in the Senate, but at the same time, she withdrew from Medicare for All, the Medicare for All plan that Bernie had in support of a, a more moderate plan. Um, and But on the whole, I mean, it's, it's a strategic choice. They're not, they were never going to pick anyone too progressive. Um, right. They're trying to get those moderates, and they know that you know people that are progressive are going to vote, vote Trump out. So... I mean, dude, this has always been an interesting kind of statistic of mine is, is I'm not quite sure how many Biden and Warren or not Biden, excuse me, uh, Bernie and Warren supporters out there are because, and I use this as an example in, in 2016 in the primaries, the, you know, Bernie wins Michigan, he beats Hillary, he wins Michigan in the, in the districts or the counties that he heavily won a lot of those counties flipped to Trump in the, in the presidential election. So I think there's this interesting dynamic there that there is this crowd that is uh, not, not necessarily radical, but I guess, you know, they would prefer to be far left, but they're just so sick and tired of establishment bullshit, particularly, you know, even coming from the, the left, okay, the, you know, the DNC, um, that they just went for Trump on the right because I mean again you're just you're putting me between a rock and a hard place with those two selections, so they they just chose the outsider instead of you know choosing Clinton something that was just essentially an establishment pick and you feel like nothing was going to get done with. So my whole thing was that I felt like with the pick that he needed Biden needed, or I felt like he would have tried to cater towards the progressives a little bit. And now what's going to be interesting, it's going to be quite funny actually to watch now how the, the Republican propaganda machine comes in here and tries to make you think that Kamala Harris is, is the next Bernie Sanders, essentially. And that, you know, she's this radical far left, you know, individual that's going to socialize everything in the country and yada, yada, yada. When she's more, you know, middle of the pack, um, probably in here till lately, you know, kind of really seeing where she's she's gone kind of further left. 
um, that campaign of, of misinformation is really going to drive me up the wall um, because I think absolutely through and through that it was an establishment pick. Um, so I'm just kind of, I really thought that they would maybe, and I, and I probably gave the DNC too much hope on this, that I would really thought that they would try to throw, you know, something nice to the progressives, to the young progressives of the party. But it, I mean, it just kind of baffles me at this point that they basically are just, in my opinion, they're showing progressives the door. Um, and, you know, Logan, I don't know if you have any kind of input on that. Um, you know, just kind of where I'm coming from is I really feel like between 16 and now, I really feel like the DNC has has shafted um, progressives with the disrespect of Bernie in 16, with the ganging up of Bernie now in 2020 after South Carolina, um, and then this pick. I just really feel like they are not concerned at all with the long-term vision, um, you know, of, of hopefully one day millennials go vote. Um, they're just not concerned with them at all. I mean, I I agree that she's not the next Bernie Sanders, but I'm not quite with I'm not quite with the idea that she isn't a progressive. Like I think I mean she she has to be the most if not the most one of the most one of the top three most liberal people ever to be on a major party's ticket. Mm -hmm. Um and like I guess I think maybe the difference is like she represents like an evolutionary progressivism of the Democratic Party. Um, and so, like, while I would definitely say she's establishment, her selection is a recognition that, like, the establishment is slowly changing. Um, and so it, it's going to take people like Bernie and Elizabeth um, to to push the forward or to push the party forward in a, in a more liberal direction. Um, but I think, like, the synthesis of a Biden and a Bernie, you know, might be a Kamala. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think you know, uh, we've used the word like flip-flopping or like floundering. Um, You're noticing that Trump is trying to attack her from the left on her uh, attorney uh, general uh, term. And he's trying to attack her from the right (laughs) saying that she's this ultra liberal. So like, it's either like she's, she's a cop or she hates cops. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that like Trump, Trump can't nail it. You can't nail anything on her. Uh, I'm not sure why that, like, why we don't just call that, like, good political strategy. Like, I'm, I, I don't want my friends to be that way. But mm-hmm. uh, I kind of want my politicians to, <laughs> to be electable. Um, right. So I guess, yeah, her, I mean, Jordan, I agree with you. She's definitely electable. But Garrison, I also agree with you. There's a, there's a certain part of the country that it, they just want a, a populist. And right. they don't care whether it's left-wing populism or right-wing populism. They want someone who speaks to them. You hear this like stereotype of like the white union worker in Michigan mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, I don't. I don't think Kamala, as a DNC strategy, is is the person who wins that over. But I do think um, Kamala is the person who wins this year's great political bu- uh, buzzword: the, the suburban, uh, the suburban voters. I won't use. Trump's term for him, but okay. um, I think you know. If I think Kamala can help, you know, help flip a Virginia. Yeah, I do. Interesting. So, with, so, and here's kind of a, a follow-up question to that. Where, and I, I mean, it, it could be a mix of all of it. Where do, where do you feel like the most important group is? So, in '16, it was the undecideds, you know, the moderates. Um, do you think that they're shooting for? you know, a big, a big African-American turnout, kind of like what they were, I feel like they've been trying to recover that 
ever since, you know, how poorly it was in 16? Do you think they're more so shooting for that white educated suburban vote? I mean, where, where do you think that the queen chess piece is essentially, where do you think that they're going to put more of their attention towards either the kind of the more metropolitan black vote or the more kind of educated white suburban vote, which one's their home ticket? Mm, well, I, I don't have the data, but just from looking at like what, what buzzwords both campaigns are using. Um, Joe is a safe old white grandpa and mm. um, he, 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 he placates um, and he makes, he makes comfortable, um, I think, suburban white voters, um, which is ironic, of course, because he was elected uh, in the primaries largely with the support of black Southern voters. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of who, you know, who, who do you ride to victory? And, it, and also I should add, it's, it's not an or question. I mean, you should try to win, you know, multiple constituencies. Um, I think obviously with the pick of Kamala and with the state of the country, having a ticket that um, not only is like elected by and supported by black voters, but like uh, whose vision uh, to support black communities is enforced and checked on by black voters. Um, I think that'll be important. I mean, a, a story I remember from the 2016 election was when Michelle Obama came to um, Wake Forest and, um, and there was a person there and, and Michelle Obama was promoting Hillary. And, and, uh, and I asked this person like, Oh, did you, did you, did you vote? Uh, or cause I think early voting was already happening or something like that. I said, Oh no, I'm not voting for Hillary. I'm just here to see Michelle. Um, that's Jeez. the type of voter we, we can't, we just can't have this year. Right. Um, and, and when we talk about locking down, um, and, and, uh, supporting black voters we're talking about getting people who, who who just did not vote for hillary um for a number of reasons yeah and that's a um that that's that's kind of my next question is to that is is kind of a conclusion to all this is do obviously voter turnout is the key for a democratic victory um you know that's something they've been fighting for 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 decades now and that republicans have been actively trying to stop through gerrymandering and and making you know voter registration more difficult and eliminating polling places and such as that. Do you think her selection and then more overall, do you think this ticket drives voter turnout? And and Jordan, I'll let you start first with your opinion on that. Mm, does it drive voter turnout? Uh, I don't want to be a cynic, but I'm I'm gonna say no. I, I no. think I think what drives voter turnout in this election is Trump. It's right. going to be getting Trump out. Um, obviously, there could have been a ticket that maybe would, you know, if he had picked Bernie Sanders, like, I would say I think turnout will be a little bit higher because of Kamala over Bernie Sanders in some ways, mm-hmm. in some demographics. But no, I don't I, I'm, I don't think people, you know, are as excited. This isn't like when Obama gets the Democratic nominee or, mm-hmm. you know, like this isn't as momentous as that. Not to knock, you know, the historical nature of the pick. But it, 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 I don't, I don't know. I don't think it excites people. She's, I mean, yeah, I think it's, you know, it is great. She is a black woman. She's an Asian American woman, but I, it's not going to be as exciting for people to say, Hey, I'm going to go vote for Biden over because of Kamala. Right. And honestly, this pick, this pick wasn't for black people, right? It, it, Biden has the black vote or at least the black people that are going to vote the black people who vote what we can consistently vote on. Biden already has those people. Mm-hmm. So I think this is 
I don't know. I, I, and I think it's also hard to gauge with the pandemic and how many people are actually going to be able to vote and right. how, how, long we vote. Vote, how yeah. we vote, how long it takes for us to vote. Um, I think all of those are factors that it's kind of hard to predict this far out, but I'm going to say, no, I'm going to say, I don't think the six sites, you know, had, you know, they picked Susan Rice or, you know, I, I think it's about the same. I think excitement stays the same. I think, I think honestly, the only pick that may have excited more people um, would have been Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm. uh, just because of that, that following that she's amassed since her uh, 2018 campaign. But right. yeah, I say that, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting this year to be a, a high voter turnout year, even absent the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I agree with you on that as well. That's, I think that's the biggest thing that I was let down about is, is I feel like they would have learned after 2016 and how bad they were embarrassed that that needs to be something, one of their main goals they focused on is that turnout. And I was just very disappointed with what I see as an establishment pick. Um, you know, even if you kind of can take, some pro with it that she is at least one of the more, um, at least on her voting record and what she sponsors, she is one of the more far left leaning. But I thought the same thing that this just isn't a very exciting ticket, and that it's just frustrating to see just immediately this you know the Democratic media machine just immediately come on morning talk shows and, and everything to try to convince the American people this is just a hands down winning ticket. Yeah, um, I, I think the only thing I add in is like you know again, it I think the Repub- or the Democratic Party is trying to get this. Obama 08 uh, mm-hmm. fandom, and that's never going to happen, right? It's not enough anymore just to put up a diverse candidate. Right. We saw that in 2016 with Hillary, and I think we're going to see that again. You can't just put up a diverse candidate and call it a day. You gotta need you need something else now. Um, right. And I think, I mean, so far I'm I'm not seeing it, but hey, we've got a few months to go. Right, um, Logan. Just kind of a, a question here for you. What What do you think? And this is this is maybe a little difficult to answer. What do you think the overall the, the correct way to phrase this here, the, when they do their advertising, when they're trying to push this ticket, you know, as we kind of get closer to November, what do you think the overall theme of their advertising is? I mean, they're just going to completely buy into these are the ones that will, you know, get Trump out. Is it more so we'll just focus on Trump as just this huge evil and that we need to replace him with these better people, AKA Biden or Harris. Do you think they just put the resumes head to head? I mean, what do you kind of feel like is their main, advertising thing hurt or some main points that they're going to try to hit on to make people believe, you know, this is a winning ticket. Well, I think one of the sad realities about this election is um, if you look at approval and disapproval numbers for both candidates, uh, Biden has never gotten above 50% approval and Trump has never gotten below 50% disapproval. He's actually been above 55 most of the time. And so it's, people don't like Biden. They just don't like Trump more. Right. right. <laughs> and so when we're talking about advertising, I, I see no reason why we should expect any form of positive marketing or advertising. I mean, uh, I think Kamala, Kamala said today uh, that something about, yeah, we expect this to be like a, a mudslinging competition or something. Those aren't her exact words, but she said we expect this to get dirty and we're, we're ready to we're ready. Oh, I expect a real terrible, disunifying uh, American. Oh my God! <laughs> but do you, I mean, is that? Uh, I mean, I mean, Biden's going to get up there and, and give you some old school 1950s shit talk line about taking them out back and 
you know, this is my day. I want to give him a haymaker right to the kisser or some shit like that. Yeah. But, I mean, right, right. I mean, uh, Kamala, you know, she did. She came after him in the debate. So I definitely think she may have a couple zingers in her. But my thing is, I do kind of worry about she sometimes tries to lean in too heavily to that. Almost like she's trying to make like a, a TikTok or something or, you know, make mm. something that's going to go viral. You know, something her campaign could put in a six second video and and, you know, kind of spur interest among the youth. Um, I think that's one of my kind of biggest debate critiques with her. She tries to, instead of having an overall good performance, she tries to to hit these calculated massive punches. But um, any last thoughts about any of that, about uh, whether it's a winning ticket, about how much you love and believe in the DNC, about how much of a failure the two-party system is? I think uh, the pandemic and Trump's response dictates this election way more than Biden or Kamala does, personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I I really think you know. I mean, as of now, I think if we this election were today, I think he loses. Mm-hmm. But a lot can happen in three months. And Absolutely. I'm I'm, I mean, I re- we remember 2016, and we all three of us were pretty, you know. I don't know. I at least for me, I was not. I was pretty confident that Trump was not going to win. Right. Oh yeah. I think and that the entire we were, world was. And we yeah. were sitting on your couch, Garrison, kind of just, just uh, dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> And just like disbelief, and right. so I'm I'm weary to to count Trump out at this point. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah, yeah, especially because yeah. I think he was behind in polls at this point last year mm-hmm. too. So I don't know. I I think it's not an exciting ticket. People are not, you know, it's not an exciting ticket. Biden still has these sexual assault allegations out yep. there, and I think one thing that both Biden and Kamala are not good at are rectifying their past with their present. Oh, good point. Um and. I'm going to be interested to see how they kind of address that, how they mm-hmm. each address their own past in moving forward, especially if they're going to at least pretend to be a more progressive ticket, you know? Right. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah. And this, this will end up being, this will be our main, obviously our main storyline going forward. Um, I imagine that we'll probably have, um, you know, weekly content to be able to, to, to keep listeners updated on this and, and kind of give some feedback on, um, any, uh, any, any last thoughts on anything, Logan, about, about the pick, about anything, the vision going forward for the DNC? Um, I have met the postmaster general. Ooh. He is an asshole. And, uh, if we, uh, do end up in a male only situation, I think, uh, this election could go any which way and we'll all look like fools for spending so much time on and a former attorney general from California. Damn. Way to end on that cynical note. <laughs> I think that'll be, I think that'll be a common theme of this podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to balance it out as much as we can, but also <laughs> let's look, let's look the country in the face. All right, guys, that's going to be the end of the episode for this week. Again, appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate all the support that you had had our way. Uh, We do ask if you did enjoy the show or any of the segments at all that you give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts at. Uh, we got a pretty pretty busy week coming up here. Uh, Democratic National Convention is going to kick off on Monday. Uh, Several dozen kind of um, high-profile guests are going to be doing some speaking. And as always, I'm going to look forward to the Republican rebuttal and all that kind of pompous that uh, happens on the Democratic side of things. Um, So, you know, we'll be back next week, probably with plenty of discussion on that and uh, any other headlines. 
um, appreciate that again appreciate you guys being patient with us as we kind of figure out uh, what this is going to look like what we kind of wanted to look like uh, we'll end up adding some segments here and there i think as we kind of develop uh, give some laughter in there every now and then and make the mood a little bit lighter um, but again thanks for thanks for everything and uh, you guys stay safe this week <laughs>